So, good evening, everyone. My name is Toby Matheson. I'm welcoming you to the Middle East Center Friday evening lecture series. And tonight we have Professor Toby Dodge, who is going to talk to us about Iraqi politics, Iraq as a political field, and the you know impact of the recent assassinations there, and also of the protest movement. So, plenty to talk about. Toby is very well placed to speak about Iraq. He is uh, currently the Kuwait professor and director of the Kuwait program at the LSC and is also their professor in the Department of International Relations. He is also the Iraq research director for the DFID-funded conflict research program, which is obviously also on Iraq, and he was until 2018 the director of the Middle East Center. But he's coming to talk to us tonight uh, as an expert on Iraq, indeed one of the world's foremost experts on the modern history of Iraq and the, the politics of Iraq, a state that is uh, much in the news but little understood and very, very few people have actually been able to do proper field work and spend prolonged periods of time. Toby is the author of two uh, major monographs on Iraq. First, what was originally uh, his doctoral dissertation, which was then published as uh, Inventing Iraq, the Failure of Nation Building and the History Denied. And the second book, largely based on Toby's experience in Iraq uh, after the invasion of 2003, titled Iraq from War to a New Authoritarianism, and also the author of many shorter research papers on issues such as the protest movement in Iraq in the last few years. Therefore, it is my great pleasure to welcome Toby Dodge to the stage, and please uh, join me in welcoming him. Right, thank you very much. It's always a, a delight to be here. And Michael was saying the last time I spoke here, we were in the old part of the building with all the books and everything. And now we're in this kind of shining new space age creation. I think we should remember to tweak the Iraqi nationalists in us. Iraqi designed, Iraqi funded, so it's, uh, it's apt that I talk about Iraqi nationalism while I'm here. And I also thank Toby, my namesake, for um, inviting me. Uh, to avoid conclusion, I thought we could call him young Toby. Uh, <laughs> but then it occurred to me rather late in the day, that would make me old Toby. So that wouldn't be a very good idea either. And it's great to see Toby amongst old friends at, at St. Anthony's, the new generation of young Middle East scholars bringing some uh, youth millennial exuberance to the place. So uh, thanks a lot for that. Not that it didn't lack I exuberance. Mean, the old but uh, I say that as an old man, of course. So this is part of a larger research project, examining the causes and consequences and the evolution of the political system that was put in place after regime change. And as Toby's saying, it's, it's slowly, as ever, metamorphosizing by a, a process of magic I'm not fully in control of into a book. So what I'm going to give you today is the result of seven research trips to Basra, Baghdad, Ramadi, Mosul, and Erbil over the last four years. And the process has been involved in elite interviews with politicians, civil servants, then academics and activists going forward. And I leave for Baghdad tomorrow for the next trip. I haven't been there for, because of the events I'm just about to describe. I haven't been there for four months, which I feel. So the idea is to map how the political system put in place after 2003 has evolved over the last 17 years and the balance it struck in its reproduction between ideology, economics, 
and coercion. Now, the assassination on the evening of 2nd, 3rd of January of Qasem Soleimani and Adil Mahdi al-Mahandis, who is the senior commander of the Hashishah, was the senior commander of the Hashishah, being the founder of Qatib, Hezbollah, is the latest crisis to hit the system. And we've all been wondering, um, I heard you had a spectacular panel last Friday with uh, notable experts on the region and the country, so I thought I'd add to that. But I'd add to that by actually narrowing down the focus, moving it away from the regional dynamics to look at the crisis that erupted with a coincidence, I hasten to add, the day after I left the country last, on the 1st of October 2009 onwards. Iraqi politics were catapulted into a state of what I could probably describe as uproar, with major cities in the south and centre of the country wracked by large and sustained protest movements. These avowedly secular and nationalist demonstrations called for the overthrow of the post-2003 system the Mahasasa system, and the politically sanctioned corruption that it's given rise to. Iraq's ruling elites, those empowered after 2003, first responded by issuing unrealistic promises of further spending and jobs. When that failed, they have responded with overt and covert violence, spearheaded by the militias that Mohandas, the gentleman who was assassinated on the 2nd, 3rd of January, controlled in an attempt to suppress the movement. So in the wake of both these assassinations and the protest movement, the future of Iraqi politics, I would argue, is in the balance. From a voyeuristic point of view, admittedly, it's a really interesting time to be visiting Iraq, but also to be studying its politics. Those who run the militias at the core of the Hashishabi and those that have been demonstrating on the streets of Iraqi cities have radically different visions of Iraq's future. So what I want to do this evening is to investigate the ideological, the financial, and the coercive organizations and a course of resources and actions that the major actors in Iraqi politics have deployed and where this may lead the country to going. Now, I want to, uh, Toby said I have an hour and a half to talk, so I want to do this in six quick and simple... I keep looking at his face. When his face starts looking grumpy, and I've run out of time. In five straightforward and easy steps. First, I want to look at how Iraq's political field was sectarianized, the sectarianization of Iraq after 2003. Then I want to detail, which I think, to me at least, is, is, is the fascinating evolution of electoral politics in the national elections, two in 2005, 2010, 2014, and then finally 2018. And running parallel to that from 2009-10 onwards, I want to look at the nascent and then growing and cohering protest movement that is now dominating Iraqi politics. And finally, the battle for Iraq's political field between the protesters and a section, at least, of the ruling elite. And if Toby's face is still looking happy, I haven't run out of time, I will then have a brief conclusion that we can pick up in drinks and dinner afterwards. So Iraq's current political system was imposed upon the country in the aftermath of the 2003 US-led invasion and regime change. From within the term, those PPE students amongst you, from within the terminology of comparative politics, this system more closely represents a kind of pluralist understanding of the state, not as this coherent, unilinear, hierarchical, delineated fact, but an arena 
of intra-elite competition, where the elites are competing with each other and pulling in resources from society. So there isn't... I, if, if you come with me tomorrow and we go to Baghdad and look some kind of hard border between the state and society, I would venture it would be impossible to find. The state was also, as a deliberate part of the post-2003 political settlement, disaggregated after each election in 2005, 2010, 2014, and 2018, with the different ministries and senior positions within the civil service being divided against competing victorious political parties. So if we take any ministry at random, the Ministry of Electricity, we have a minister appointed as part of a grand coalition in the post-2018 negotiations to, to bring together a coalition government. Underneath him, we have a series of director generals, senior civil servants, that he hasn't appointed, that represent different factions within the political elite. So that one ministry, particularly crucial for stability in Iraq, and every other ministry, has been disaggregated and split between the different political parties. So under this rubric, the cabinet and the prime minister's office became the only formal vehicle for the adjudication between competing parties and different state institutions they control. Now, the ideological justification for this rather bizarre system was developed not in Iraq in 2003 and not in Washington before 2003, but in the early 1990s by what were then a rather disparate and, dare we say, unimportant group of Iraqi political exiles. As we know, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in August 1990, which meant his removal became US foreign policy. Previously peripheral exiled groups and opposition figures gained the backing of the United States to hold a series of conferences which ran through the 1990s right up to 2002 and culminated in a London conference that set the tone for the invasion. What I'm arguing is the most important conference in this set, at this chain of conferences, was in Salahuddin, the newly liberated town controlled by the two Kurdish parties and the Kurdish regional government in October 1992. It was here that the umbrella organisation, the Iraqi National Congress, was formed. That in itself isn't particularly important. But the positions within that organisation, the different people on the committees that formed that organisation, were distributed along ethno-sectarian lines, along a virtual quota, which we must say estimated that Shia Arabs represented 55% of the population, Sunni Arabs 22% of the population, and Kurds 19% of the population. It was at that moment, I would argue, in 1992, with the formation of this overarching oppositional organisation, the Iraqi National Congress, that Mahasasa, the sectarian division of the Iraqi state became the official policy of the Iraqi opposition. So after the invasion, when the United States came to Baghdad in a relatively quick war and appointed Paul Bremer as the civilian head of the Coalition Provisional Authority, his staff went to, in June and July 2003, went to, around forming the membership of the governing council, 25 people. This body was heralded by the CPA as the most representative governing body in Iraqi history. Where does that representation come from? 
It can't have come from the method of their selection, Americans picking people they thought could be competent or coherent. It came from the sectarian balance of the Iraqi uh, governing council, and that balance was guaranteed by the dominant political parties who, who'd formed dominance in exile, allied themselves with the United States, insisting on the Salahuddin principles to make the Iraqi governing council. Now let's go forward from that moment in 2003 to I think the most portentous year for this system, 2005. It's when Iraq held its first two national elections after regime change. It's when the Iraqi constitution rather controversially, quickly, and dare we say shoddily, was drafted. So Iraqi politics in 2005, I'd argue, solidified the sectarianization of Iraq. Iraq held its first national elections in January 2005. The elections were held under a closed list system. For those of you also doing PPE, you'll know about that. In the first elections, there's one single national electoral district. The United Nations at the time recognized that this would help ethno-sectarian mobilization. Local issues were swept aside. Personalities got lost as very large coalitions were built and used sectarian and ethnic rhetoric, not only to define their own constituencies, you're a Kurd, vote for me, you're a Sunni, vote for me, you're a Shia, vote for me, but also to harden the division between those competing groups. Once the date for the election had been uh, <coughs> scheduled, Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, who'd fought Bremer, lest we forget, to get early elections, threw his weight behind creating a single coalition of Shia parties the United Iraqi Alliance. The Kurds followed suit, and as we know, the vast majority of those who had subsequently been labelled Sunni boycotted. The voter turnout was 58%. However, voting in areas of Kurdish and Shia majorities ranged between 75 to 90%, and turnout in the Sunni majority areas was as low as 10%. After the January elections, the government was formed, the constitution was written, and then we go to the second set of elections under the new constitution, the constitutional elections of December 2005, which I would argue, and this is 2005, a long time ago, marked the high point of electoral sectarianization in Iraq. The United Iraqi Alliance, this group claiming to represent the Shias, ran again, but this time the Sunnis were mobilized as Sunnis by Tawafiq al-Iraq, the Accord Front, which Sunni politicians realising, or politicians who wanted to represent the Sunnis realising, that if they didn't get involved in the sectarianisation of Iraq in this Mahasasa system, they peripheralised, they had no access to state resources, and they wouldn't be major players in Iraqi politics. So the turnout went up to 79.6%, with the Iraqi National Alliance winning 41%, the Kurdish Alliance running 21%, and the Accord Front winning 15%. Now that's the high point in 2005. From that moment onwards, I would argue, we see the steady decline in the sectarianization of the Iraqi electorate as the electorate slowly turn away from what's been imposed upon them. Let me just run through the 2010 and 2014 elections. In the 2010 elections, there's a major challenge to the sectarian system. Firstly, the United Iraqi Alliance split and Nouri al-Maliki took away his organizational power, the money he'd, he'd raised, 
and ran on the state of uh, law coalition. Likewise, the sectarianization of the Sunnis split with, with numerous groups competing for the Sunni vote. Um, and Ayad Alawi, long-term veteran politician, forms the Iraqi nationalist, Iraqia, and runs on an overtly secular platform. We come through to the election results and the voters split. Maliki wins 24%, United Iraqi Alliance wins 19%, and Ayad Alawi wins 24%, and Iraqia wins votes on this secular platform, certainly undoubtedly in the Sunni majority areas, but also in Shia majority areas all the way down to Basra. Maliki rallies, rallies this elite coalition because then Iraqia and Alawi poses a threat to the Mahasasa system, uses debarthification to fracture the groupings and then brings it back together. The Mahasasa system lives, Maliki gets a second term. The 2014 elections were fought uh, before Mosul falls to the Iraqi, uh, to the Daesh. But again, you see high uh, fracturing of the vote. The Shia parties split into three different coalitions. The Sunni uh, parties are also split three ways, and the Kurdish parties are split three ways. So you're moving towards a much more competitive, much more fractured electoral system, which brings us through to the aftermath of 2014, when the government formation is still going on. Nur al-Maliki is roundly blamed for the rise of the Islamic State and the fall of Mosul is kicked out of power. But yet again, another coalition of national unity is formed. Now, running parallel to that, the high point of the sectarianization of the electorate, and then in 2005, and then the slow fracturing of that, we also have a nascent but then growing protest movement. And I think this dare I say, up to this moment at least, is one of the most exciting things that has happened in post-2003 Iraqi politics. Now, undoubtedly, this protest movement, which starts off in 2009 and 2010, starts off as a complaint, a gripe, an argument against the increasing incoherence of the Iraqi state. An Iraqi state disaggregated, an Iraqi state prone to uh, high levels of corruption. In 2009, 2010, you have sporadic demonstrations, especially across the south of the country at the height of the summer, with people saying, why can't our government, sitting on these massive oil reserves, deliver clean running water and electricity? They are failing us. But in 2011, uh, against the background of the regional, uh, region-wide protests of the Arab Spring, a nationwide protest movement is staged across southern Iraq, in the Kurdish majority areas in the north, and in Baghdad's Tafriya Square. In Suleymaniyah, a crowd of 3,000 protesters gathered. They're shot upon. This expands to 7,000 protesters. In Baghdad, uh, the demonstrators occupy Tahrir Square. In Dakar, in the far south, protesters blame poor government services and on the sectarian division of the government and blame Mohassasa for the incoherence of the state and its rampant corruption. A similar argument is then developed in Baghdad with the movement 
gaining ideological coherence around this wonderful chant in the name of religion, the thieves have robbed us. A powerful critique of Islamist politics, of the dominance of Shia Islamist politicians in Baghdad, rallying ordinary people, and it's quite a diverse group of people, opinion polling that's been done in Tahrir Square across the south, points to certainly a young, uh, a group of young people in the square, but also middle class, educated, rising up to civil society activists. This brings us through to the 2008 elections. Now, in the wake of the 2005 demonstrations, the 2018 elections saw two dominant post-2005 trends accelerating. Firstly, there was yet again further fragmentation of the electoral blocs and parties running for office. But more intriguingly, there was a decision by the, the vast majority of the ruling elite to move away from ethno-sectarian rhetoric. There we say recognising that that rhetoric was failing in its aim to mobilise populations and drive them to the ballot box. The electoral coalitions mainly focused on bread and butter issues, how on earth technocratic policy-driven solutions could lift the Iraqi state out of its corrupt morass and deliver more government services. So we had another fractured vote, another fractured turnout, but much more importantly, keep in mind the figure from December 2005's elections, the turnout was 44% nationally, 33% in Baghdad, and as low as 10% in Basra. What the Iraqi electorate had done, I would argue, in the face of a sustained social media campaign against the elections, don't vote, it only encourages and it doesn't change them, stayed at home. They sat on their hands. Muqtada al-Sadr, I would argue, in the Sadrist movement, was the only electoral coalition that did well. And it didn't do very well. It sustained its vote from 2014. It did that through allying with the Iraqi Communist Party, adopting a very aggressive, dare we say, revolutionary platform and saying, vote for us and we will transform this system that has dogged your lives since 2003. So I think you could argue that 2018 saw a majority of the Iraqi population turning their backs on mainstream politics, but more worryingly, turning their back on democracy, or at least not thinking that voting was going to change it. They were issuing a damning critique of the dominance of the electoral system by corrupt post-2003 ethno-sectarian parties. So in the aftermath of the 2018 election, during October and November 2019, the largest, and I would argue ideologically most coherent protest movement, broke out across Baghdad, down through the south of the country, all the way to Basra. Over a million people in Baghdad, think of the crowds and the mobilisation involved in that, repeatedly went onto the streets of Baghdad and then the cities and towns of the south of the country in a series of protests against the Mahasasa system. Its sectarianisation and the systemic 
corruption and coercion at its core. The movement represented the largest grassroots political mobilization in Iraq at least since 2003. And as such, was the greatest and the most sustained post-2003 challenge to the order that the Iraqi ruling elite had created after regime change. The demonstrators were initially driven forward by a popular frustration and anger with the role that politically sanctioned corruption plays at the core of the system. However, as the protests grew and were subject to extensive and extended violent suppression, the demands of the protesters radicalized and expanded to encompass a program for the transformation of the whole system. The protest movement demanded that political parties central to the electoral sectarianization of Iraq be removed from power. They leave. That they would be replaced by a temporary government while new elections were held. Party offices across the south of Iraq were burnt down, with those parties and organizations seen as supportive of reform in 2015, the Sadrists and the Iraqi Communist Party ridiculed in 2019 for taking part in government formation in 2018. So this is across the board damnation of those parties that have been involved. Finally, in early November 2019, the protest movement cohered to the extent that it could issue a manifesto of demands. A 10-point program <coughs> circulated in Takara Square in downtown Baghdad in the first edition of the protest's own newspaper, Tuk Tuk, and uh, promoted through those wonderful banners that hang off the demonstrators' headquarters, the so-called Turkish restaurant, the abandoned tower block overlooking Takara Square. The manifesto called for the resignation of the current government and its replacement by an independent, non-party caretaker administration. That was to be followed by the complete overhaul of electoral re regulations and the supervisory authorities uh, the Iraqi High Electoral Council had proven to be incompetent in all the rest in the previous elections, new laws to identify the sources of party political funding, and a new national election to be directly supervised by the United Nations. Overall, one of the many banners hung from the protesters' headquarters summed up the revolutionary and also far-reaching demands. It read, quote, The country wants the fall of Bremer's constitution, the fall of Bremer's parties, the electoral law to be changed, the party law to be changed, it was a long banner, and the IMF treaties to be revoked. That kind of sums it up where the demonstrators are coming from. Now, what would the political elites do when faced with the largest social movement in Iraq's post-2000 three history, unambiguously damning them for corrupt <coughs> failures and calling for their speedy removal. First of all, all the major members of the existing ruling elite promised thorough reforms to the Mahasana system. From the start of the protest, President Baham Saleh and Prime Minister Adil Abdul Mahdi appeared on national television promising greater employment opportunities for young people and a new election law that then the dominance of the post-2003 political parties. As they did in 2015, they embarked on an expansionary budget, an inflationary <coughs> budget, pumping more, even more money into employment. Given that similar pledges had been given during and after the 2011 and 2015 process, this, unsurprisingly, 
did not convince the demonstrators to demobilize. The next strategy was to challenge the ideological veracity of the protest movement by suggesting that they were not demanding equal citizenship in the name of a united secular nationalism, but instead working for outside powers, our old favorites, primarily Israel and the United States. This strategy was pursued by the Shia Islam Islamist militia leaders, Qais al-Khazali and Hadi al-Amri, in a series of telefied interviews and very militant, if not aggressive speeches. When it was clear that this campaign was no longer influencing Iraq's political field, the ruling elite resorted to the heavy use of both overt and covert coercion. In Baghdad and other parts of the South in October and November, a campaign of targeted assassinations, intelligence gathering on op uh, opposition movements, intimidation of activists, and closing down of news outlets was launched. To date, thousands have been arrested and subject to unrestrained torture. At least 600 have been murdered and thousands more have been wounded. The logic of such a campaign was an extension of similar tactics successfully deployed in the wake of separate demonstrations in Basra in the summer and autumn of 2018, where security forces targeted protesters and civil society activists and successfully demobilised them. This time, that campaign simply <coughs> failed. That if you go down to Tahrir Square on Saturday and especially on Sunday, you'll see a whole wave of school students, university students coming back onto the square, facing down the very undoubted violence and suppression of the ruling elite and demanding what? The end to corruption, the removal of the current ruling elite in the name of a secular nationalism and equality of rights for all, irrespective of what religious or ethnic denomination those people come from. So, with the tolerance of the chair, uh, I shall conclude. In the aftermath of the assassinations of Soleimani and Mohandas, the powers that be have sought to exploit the egregious and uncomplicated breaching of Iraq's sovereignty. I mean, where those, uh, that convoy was cut down by uh, drones was a, a public road between the airport terminal and Baghdad, a road anyone who's been to Baghdad has travelled down hundreds of times. It's a, a particularly shocking thing to do. On the 5th of January, so a couple of days after the assassinations, the Iraqi parliament, albeit in court and facing a campaign of sustained intimidation, voted to expel all American forces. The leader of the Iranian-backed power military groups left Iraq and came to Qom in Iran, where Muqtar al-Sadr has been a long-term resident, on the 13th of January. This meeting rallied groups commonly opposed to the US presence in Iraq, addressed the leadership vacuum caused by the assassination of Mohandas, and attempted to quell infighting and long-simmering feuds amongst rival Iranian-backed militias. In Iraq, the Badr organization leadership put forward one of its members, Abu Ali uh, Basri, to replace Mohandas as the deputy chairman of the PMF, the Hashid uh, Council. Muqtad al-Sada then went on to hold an anti-US protest in Baghdad, as uh, Jadriya uh, neighborhood on the 24th of January. The Million Man March actually probably delivered about 150,000, but what is going on here is the mobilization 
of a section, probably a smaller section of society, around a militant Iraqi rejectionism of American influence. By inference and overtly, they're saying the protesters in Tahrir Square are aligned to the United States. We are defending Iraqi sovereignty, although we're also aligned to Iran. This week, Sadr announced that he will declare that the revolution, the October, the October revolution of the protests in Tahrir, has deviated from its true course unless, uh, unless protests follow his 12 conditions, amongst them stopping denouncing neighboring nations, stopping cutting roads, civil disobedience, opening up the schools and so forth. Sadr marries the demands of the government. So he then announced that if they don't do that, he would declare the revolution has lost its purpose and has moved away with the inference it will be subjected to violence. So Sadr's latest strategy, I think I could argue, shows that, that he's trying to say to the Iranians that he's the strongest player amongst the Shia Islamist politicians, that he can step into the vacuum caused by Mohandas' assassination, but he's also rejecting against the scepticism rising up to outright insult of some of the demonstrators delivered towards him and his movement. Negotiations within Fatah, the rejectionist coalition, are moving in a direction that they're trying to block out a new reformist prime minister, they're trying to get their own person in power, and Sistani, the voice of moderation, the, the leading critique of the use of violence, the man who successfully demanded Adel Abdel Mahdi's resignation, is now hedging and in the face of the assassinations and calling for early elections. So before the assassinations of Mohandas and Soleimani, the ruling elite found it impossible to use their already weak ideology to challenge a movement based on the calls for equal countrywide secular citizenship. Instead, they had resorted to deploying very high levels of covert and overt violence. Now, they're attempting to reoccupy the center of Iraq's political field, to peripherize the demands of the demonstrators <coughs> by a militant rejectionist nationalism empowered by Trump's instant gratification of the assassination of Soleimani and Mohandas. I doubt this will work. That around the time of the, uh, of the assassinations, numbers in Tahrir Square had dropped off to 3,000, 4,000 hardcore protesters. As Sadr moved his own people out, what he was trying to do was remove the organizational and logistical backbone of the demonstrators to make them more vulnerable. But that Sunday, a new wave of young school children, university college graduates came into the square and repeopled it with more committed demonstrators. So we're still, I suspect, in the middle of a powerful struggle for Iraq's political uh, field between those empowered after 2003 by the US invasion who've relied on coercion, corruption, and sectarianization, and those young, albeit disorganized Iraqis, with no memory of Saddam Hussein, only the memory of the aftermath of regime change, demanding what they see that should be their right, transparent government, no corruption, and equal citizenship. We shall see over the next weeks and months who wins. Thank you very much.